Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Welcome to Vampire Month on Podside Picnic. I'm here with the Giles to my Buffy. That's Pete. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in fact, we're kicking off Vampire Month, which, look, it's a, it's the kind of thing that we could spend a lot of time introducing or a little or we could just dive into today's topic, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, I have to say, before we get started here, my Gen X co-host did a tremendous job picking out three Buffy episodes for us. We watched, I think these are from season four, season five, and season six. Yep. Uh, we watched Hush, the one with the gentleman. Uh, we watched Body. The one where, spoiler alert, her mom dies. <laughs> <laughs> and we watched Once More with Feeling, also known as the musical episode. Um, and honestly, Which, I think, yeah, go ahead. I owe you for that, by the way. Oh, I okay. So here's what I was going to say is that all three of those are phenomenal in their own way. Uh, and actually, I think that your incredible skill at picking these episodes in some ways might handicap our discussion because I have seen Buffy before, but not for years. And not even as an adult, really. Um, honestly, the last time I saw it, it might have still been on the air, which is a scary thought. But <laughs> it, or it was like shortly after it had been on the air, like early, early to mid 2000s. Um, but I mean, if you watch these three episodes, which I highly recommend all three of them, you left with the impression that this is one of the greatest shows of all time. And uh, that may or may not be true, but it's certainly one of the most influential. And it's if you're interested in the kind of things that we're interested in, such as drum roll, please. The literature of the fantastic. <laughs> Buffy is <laughs> <clears throat> Buffy is an in, sort of indispensable entry in both of our lifetimes um, because not only in and of itself as one of the premier sort of fantastical genre storytelling artifacts of the last 30 to 40 years, but also because it's the sort of it's the coming out party for Joss Whedon, who, whether you like him or not, uh, and we'll get into that later is looms larger over the way he might loom larger over the way that narrative arts as a whole are written than anyone alive, which is just, I said that out loud and it's a staggering thought, but it might be true. Oh, uh, honestly, <laughs> I think it's, it's pop culture malpractice not to talk about Joss Whedon when you're talking about the last 30 years. If you're avoiding him, you need to defend that. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. So on that note, uh, I want to dive into Buffy, and I want to start, Pete, with a little bit of historical background here. When Buffy the Vampire Pr Slayer premiered in 1997, um, if you've heard this show before, you may know that I was six or seven years old when it premiered. I was not in the target demographic. And I think Pete was, though, because you would have been 26, 27. Mm -hmm. uh, did you watch the show immediately when it came out? No, uh, I was in law school and I didn't have a TV. And I, I don't mean like I didn't have a TV because I was cool. I was I mean, like <laughs> I couldn't afford a TV, you know, but uh, what ended up happening was um, I got I started dating somebody around 1999 who was really into it. And at that point, you know, if somebody else is watching a show and you don't own a, own a TV, you're watching that show. Oh, for sure. So, like, were, were you two uh, going to the Blockbuster to get Buffy VHSs and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I ended up buying, for a long time, I bought DVDs instead of having a television because I could play them on my computer. Uh, in my mind, that was cheaper somehow, I guess. But, yeah, we, we, uh, we, had, we, were, we were watching the Buffy seasons a little after they came out, and occasionally I was catching them on our TV. But it's, 
it's an interesting way to watch Buffy, and I've got some theories about that, that that some of the decisions Joss was making, he was making to make the DVD sales compelling, which they certainly were. They were bestsellers to an incredible extent for well over a decade. Yeah, I I was thinking about that too, actually, because I remember being, when Buffy was on and I started to be, get close to the age where I could at least understand it, like 10, 11, 12, it was still on TV. Mm-hmm. I remember a lot of people having those Buffy DVDs lying around. They were probably some of the first DVDs I watched. And I knew a couple of people who were a few years older than me. So if I was like 11, they would have been, I don't know, 14, which is like the perfect age for the show in some ways. Um, yeah. Or always. <laughs> and and they were really into it. Um, and I, I think I, I as I, I try to try to look back into the dim mists of time here. And I think that I was not interested in Buffy for a lot of reasons. And one was that it was just the kind of thing that the people that I knew, sort of the older siblings of my friends, that kind of thing, like they were heavily into it. And that meant that we had to somehow reject it. So I was like just a couple years short of being in the target demographic, but I still remember it being um, culturally pervasive. Uh, and, you know, I, I would imagine that, like I said, I think that the perfect age for this show is probably like 14, 15, but obviously it, it has, it appealed to adults at the time and continues to appeal to adults. Um, and in many ways, like it's funny, it's funny to say this, but like, I don't know the genealogy of how sort of the idea of t- television for teens developed as opposed to children's TV and adult, adult TV, which I think both have a longer history. Um, but how sort of teen or adolescent or young adult television developed. I do feel confident in saying that Buffy was probably a watershed moment in how that went down because it was, it's a show that certainly works for adults and can be very quote unquote adult. Um, but also like is about teens and is targeted at teens in terms of its sensibility and tone and the the way that it plays with its various fantasies. I mean, am I am I making sense here, Pete? Uh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about its origins, because like it it had it had seven years to sort of climb the cultural throne to be something significant. But when it started out, the basic idea was that it was sort of like low calorie ice cream or something like that. It's like yeah, it's the show about vampires, but it's really empowering for the girls. Like it's it's so <laughs> you know, and I just like just thinking of it that way gives me a headache but that's really what's going on here is they tried to make an uplifting show for a younger audience all right here's what i want to say if you've been hiding under a rock successfully for the last 25 years first of all round of applause for you don't check the news (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, but if this show is the first time you're emerging from your cave uh buffy the vampire slayer is about a teenage girl named buffy in a idealized, fictionalized Southern California ta- town called Sunnydale, Sunnyvale. What's it called? Sunnydale. Yeah. Sunnydale. Um, and, you know, she's a teenager with teenage problems. She, she ages throughout the show, but the whole time she is a slayer, which is someone who fights vampires. Yes, but also all forms of malevolent evil because there's like a portal to, to hell in her town. And she has all these friends and mentors and, you know, teen problems, but also is out patrolling with a crossbow at night. And like, again, it's, I mean, that's, I'm going to pause and say that's one of the funniest things about Buffy is that like all this shit will be going down in the storyline and then like the solution or just like a crucial part of it always is like, well, I'm going to go on patrol. She picks up her crossbow and walks around at 3 a.m. in her like, suburban Southern California town. And it's great. But it's just it, okay. it's incredible how little police interaction she had. <laughs> just, just, it's just like a 17 year old girl walking around with this gigantic crossbow just being like, yep, just doing my thing, everybody like that's. That is, I think that that kind of gets to the heart of the charm of Buffy, which is that Buffy has some very serious and heavy episodes. We watched one, Body, where her mom dies, is incredibly heavy. It's honestly one of the most, like, intensely, uh, it, it it lingers on its pity and its pain in a way that TV very rarely does. I was I was blown away by it, honestly. It's And it's deeply sad, even if you're not locked into the show. If you've watched five seasons of TV up to that point, you're probably bawling your eyes out. But yeah. Uh, you know, anyway, it, but nonetheless, uh, with some of that, some of that aside, like it, it, the show famously like does not take itself seriously in certain ways. And that's easy to say. We say that a lot. Like say that about Witcher. Um, we say that a lot about things that we call pulpy or hammy or schlocky. I, I do kind of want to unpack at some point, maybe we won't succeed in unpacking what that means in the case of Buffy, but I think it's just important to say that like 
this is the origin of the whole Joss Whedon style, right? Where you have characters say something snappy, but corny, and then say, I can't believe I just said that. And I honestly think this was one of the first times, like, that that was written into the script as, like, a solution to characters saying corny things. It's like, you can watch that happening in real time. Is that fairly accurate, Pete? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I've, it's occurred to me to use it in, in our... Uh, um uh, uh, April Fool's episode to use Buffyisms at you to see how long it takes to get you pissed. You know, like, uh, <laughs> don't you think this whole conversation is getting a little Connery, like that kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, there's this constant meta moments, which are, you know, I think they're still sharp and smart because all of the the Whedonisms that would become annoying. I mean, they, these were not known as Whedonisms at the time; they would be known as Buffyisms. But like, they would these have so fully entered the culture that. They can be crutches. They can just be deeply annoying. They can be the lazy move. And I think what's so invigorating about watching Buffy now is like seeing all of those those meta moves, that kind of like reflexive cuteness Mm -hmm. where the characters, you know, the characters are sort of aware of the absurdity and ridiculousness of their situation, but they're also rolling with it in kind of the best, uh, you know, teen epic way like it. This is there's 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 sort of a, a vigor and an energy to it here because in the episodes, one reason is because in the episodes that we watched, um, this is a show that put, puts a lot of effort at various points in its run into being innovative. And like they really I mean, they put a lot of work into that musical episode. I can only imagine how much time they spent writing a pretty good musical based on their long running, you know, teen show. Like you watch that and you're like, damn, how much time and resources did those writers have to put that together? And like, how did they get that past, uh, you know? The, the, the network and all of the, oh, they, all of these questions that rise up like they had to go to war to, with the studio to get that done. That's the only thing that makes sense. I, they must have. Right. And you're looking at that and you're like, this is not the Whedonisms have become so tired at this point um, that, that we tend to reflexively reject them now. But like this was all there. There's this this incredible energy sort of emanating from the show of watching a group of people somewhat subversively trying to bring something new into the world. And they did. I mean, it's, it's, it's enduring influence on pop culture can be felt all over the place, but I want to get a little bit more. We're getting, we're getting very grandiose here. Uh, you texted me some really interesting questions and I'm going to, I'm going to um, hit you with one that you wanted to ask me, which is about the, uh, let me, let me get the, let me pull up the exact wording here. Okay. Oh, so so Connor's going to be unusually wordy here. He's using one of my questions. <laughs> All right. So this is from you. This is I'm quoting you here. One thing that came up during my viewing of this and in a few texts with you was lore. I found myself pausing, giving my partner. Uh, oh, that's not the one I wanted to ask, although that okay. is also interesting. Sorry. We'll we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, you, also quoting you, I found myself flinching at language choice the whole way through, adding IE to the end of words, uh, quote, that's a thing, the potent mixture of 90s slangs and Whedonisms. But Apps, your partner, was very insistent that this was just personal sensitivity and it held up well. Who is right? So I'm going to give a resounding vote to Apps. She is right. You are wrong. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and I hope I hope she's listening to this. Uh, but that's not the if she's listening to it. That's not. The, I'm not. I'm not just saying it uh, to make her feel good. I really believe she is right because. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, there's actually two answers to that question. One is that someone my age or younger who is aware of Buffy but wasn't the right age to watch it at the time, for whom it's been handed down as a pop culture artifact. Very easy to roll your eyes at this, to bracket it and say, God, this is overpoweringly 90s, which it is, to be clear. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like every time I pause here and say almost every outfit when they would reveal like what Xander was wearing that episode. I, I, I wanted to do the Indiana Jones. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> like every single time. It's just incredible. Um, so there's a, it's a great like there's such great 90s kitsch throughout this. But uh Again, so like you could bracket it and dismiss it and roll your eyes and say, yes, this is corny. Like it's not as it's not as interesting as they were convinced it was back in the cultural doldrums of 1999 or whatever. All these things that can be said, understandably, um, by those who don't have an emotional attachment to the show. So that's one move you can make. I, I do think, though, that what I try to do, what I would encourage our audience to do, what I encourage people to do in general is like it's much more fun. Like if you're reading Chaucer, for instance, is it more fun 
to sit there and be bored to death by Middle English, a dialect you don't understand? Or is it more fun to put in the effort to try to imagine what it was like to write this poem, why it was being written, who was reading it, uh, what the appeal to them would have been? I think it's obvious that it's more fun to actually put in a little bit of effort and try to situate yourself in the shoes of someone who is interested in this material. So for me, part of the fun of watching Buffy and watching anything old, really, but especially Buffy, because it's within my lifetime, so it's close, and I'm aware, I've been aware of it my, uh, most of my life, uh, but it's also distant in so many ways. Precisely because of that, it's it's very fun to cast myself back into an era that I was alive during, that I was very young, uh, and to sort of reimagine what it would have been like to be a little bit older in 1997, whatever, um, to, to try to access what was so appealing about the show. And if you do that, I think the show's a blast. Because if you look at the show as Joss Whedon and everyone else involved having a tremendous amount of fun doing the musical episode, having a tremendous amount of fun doing an episode like Body, which almost feels like an art house film that then towards the end harnesses brilliantly the tools of the, the, the fact that this is a vampire slayer uh, show. Which, like, honestly, Body is one of the most brilliant episodes of TV I've ever seen. Um, hands down, like Sopranos, Wire, like it's, it's up there with episodes from those series for sure. It certainly um, won awards. Yeah, and it, it absolutely deserved to. Uh, and I guess what I'm saying is, like, if you if you let yourself enjoy the kind of play that's going on here, let yourself enjoy the aesthetic efforts that are being made. You let yourself. It, it's a show that I think begs you to try to put yourself in a place where you can access the kind of exuberant uh, joy that was clearly around the creation of it. And I think that. So what I'm saying is, <laughs> to get right down to brass tacks, the Whedonisms. The overpowering 90s slang, the um, the specific like reflexive witticisms from the characters, all of that is an indispensable part of the Buffy experience. And I think, frankly, Pete, you cringing is you cringing at yourself in 1997. <laughs> OK, I, I'm going to take a brief moment to, to drag you, Cotter, which is uh, I need to explain to you how this sort of show works. Uh, you you ask somebody a question and then you wait for their answers, because what you just did was you read the question. I wrote you, which is backwards. Then you answered it and then you answered it for me. <laughs> you're right that was okay look i'm not gonna deny that was unfair what i'm just gonna say to you pete is so that's a thing okay, <laughs> okay. that uh, also fair so a couple of things i want to say in response the first is i would absolutely love to see a version of the canterbury tales in Whedonese. that would be the most bizarre document i've ever seen in my life <laughs> Uh, secondly, uh, the analogy I keep coming up with is, is cancer. Like the, the style of Whedon speak has had exponential growth in areas of the culture where it has no business being like within, within a Whedon, uh, art project or show, it makes all sorts of sense for everybody to talk like that because that that's his thing, right? But the idea that it's grown beyond is probably what makes it horrifying. And that's probably what my reaction is, is having heard people talk that way on buses or in theaters or in, in shows that have nothing to do with this. It's, it is, uh, it's an interesting and useful, uh, Subdialect, whatever you want to call it, but the idea that it's gone everywhere is really bad. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that that kind of migration is like migrating out of of uh, you know of media entirely into the real world. Like that, we're talking about a, a fairly complex process here that uh, we may be patient zero for. But like, I, I think that's an interesting topic that I almost want to bracket for now, just because. I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, I, I just want to make the point that, like, I thought in all seriousness that I might find myself grimacing at Buffy for somewhat different reasons, because there's no like past version of myself I'd be grimacing at, which I think is always a risk when we may when we re revisit things that were important to us long ago. Um, I, I thought that it might just feel sort of, yeah, canned, tired in a way that it really just fundamentally didn't. And, I, and the reason it didn't is because speaking as an artist, uh, I felt like it was easy for me to access watching these very best episodes of Buffy. It was easy for, it was relatively easy for me to at least feel like I was accessing 
what they were trying to do and how much fun they were having and that the fun ultimately mattered in a cultural sense. Um, well, and one of the things I loved there, and let's just take the body, the the one where uh, Buffy's mom dies as an example, is there was so much experimentation and risk taking that like you end up really focusing on the things that did land rather than the things that didn't, because there there was like so much I'm going to try this kind of camera work going on. Like a lot of times they switch to handheld just to see if that w- would work. The Whenever people were hugging each other, the camera got blurry. Like there was all these things. And these are not normal things in the Buffy universe. It was like we're doing an episode where we're exploring this and by God, we're going to try some new things. And when they worked wow yeah i mean to 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 elaborate on body first of all if you haven't seen this episode go watch it it will make sense on its own um but so you know i think that the the key thing for me is that this is an episode that sort of quietly lingers over the horror of buffy finding her mom already dead in her home on like a bright california day and so much of it lingering early is the word because so much of this, this, this is very slow paced, quiet scenes where the camera is forcing us to endure the facial expressions and body language of people who are going through the horrible experience of an unexpected loss of one of the most important people to them. Um, and those scenes are really well constructed and they're put together. And again, the, the, the show does something that TV almost never lets itself do, which is to slow down and stay with these characters through that pain. And then towards the end, I think the key thing to note is that as that's going on, uh, there is actually a fight scene with a vampire in the morgue where Buffy's mom's body is. And the brilliant thing about that scene is that the tension of it is less, is Buffy going to kill the vampire? Like we assume she is. She's the vampire slayer. It's more, is her sister who's in the room, younger sister, going to see her mom's, you know, vivisected post-autopsy body. That's what we're afraid of in that scene. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. Like, I say brilliant, and I'm not just... So here's the thing. I want to modulate this. I have called shows like The Witcher brilliant. I really enjoy The Witcher. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) this is, like, actually interesting filmmaking. I hadn't seen anything quite like it on a TV show at the very least. I can't remember too many movies that are that treat grief in such an interesting way. Uh, this was genuinely brilliant. Uh, and again, it's I'm sure it stands out within the Buffy oeuvre. But I think this is a moment we have to like we have to really plant a flag here and say, like, this is not me being a fanboy. This is me coming at this cold as an outsider and saying, yeah, that's brilliant. This is this is interesting. It's actually one of the risks of our show, Connor, because we 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 really focus on on schlock and pulp, which I you know, we, we've talked to death, but trying to show our appreciation for things that have been unappreciated and we start using the language of criticism and then we turn around and we hit something of genuine uh, exceptional worth like like Parasite or this episode. And may, we've used the words already. And I think that's one of the dangers of this podcast. Well, look, I mean, when you're trying to. So I studied this formally last semester, for instance, I was in an aesthetics uh, and philosophy of art class. So that's there's all different kinds of ways of approaching uh, the arts, obviously, systematically, you could you could be taking visual art history, you could be taking literary theory. This was a survey of recent efforts by analytic philosophers to very rigorously ground theories of the arts generally and specific art forms in their field. And so there's a lot of conceptual rigor to it and a lot of um, intensity of argumentation because these are analytic philosophers. I say this just to make the point that like one thing you're, you become a intimately aware of when you step into that work is that we've been working for millennia as a species to come up with a good vocabulary to talk about creative expression or the arts. And the vocabulary is still frustrating to us. There's no one that has, there's no one out there who has this incredible dynamic vocabulary that Pete and I are not accessing. And there are certainly people who are more erudite in certain ways than we are. Well... <laughs> not, not about science fiction from the 80s, maybe, but 
Um, but but I mean, I want to be clear here that, that I think one of the deepest, deepest problems, um, perhaps the problem of aesthetics, is that art makes us feel things that we react to on an emotional level. And it's very hard to codify emotional response in general theoretical language. It's very hard to take our emotional response and port it over to concepts that are legible to others. This is just an epistemological problem. It's a problem with consciousness. It's a very urgent problem with talking about the arts. Okay, so I got very, uh, very highbrow there for a moment. Uh, and I'm going to go lowbrow again and say that in the case of Buffy, you raise an interesting point. But in the case of Buffy, I don't care. I mean, we can call this show pulpy. It is. We can call it whatever we want. Um, sure. What, what is important to me about it for our purposes is we know its cultural influence is profound. And the way we've chosen to frame it is we have looked at its best episodes. And I think that's great. I mean, one of the questions I have for you, I mean, this this leads into a serious question, not just me asking a rhetorical question, which I often do, sorry. But <laughs> uh, my serious question is, like, how, I mean, how vast is the gap between most of the Buffy Uber? Like, how uneven does it get? How how phoned in are some, a lot of the episodes relative? Like, how do we parse the distance between <coughs> most of Buffy? <coughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. How do we parse the distance between most of Buffy and what you had me watch? Okay. Uh, to, a couple of things going on. The first is Joss Whedon season one simply wasn't as good as he was by season four or season five. So, I mean, one of the things you're watching is uh, uh, is a creative talent actually getting better at it. So, like, the first season, if anybody is interested in watching Buffy, I would tell you to skip the first season entirely. I mean, it is uh, it is substandard television. Things really start to get a little more interesting in season two. And Hush in season four is when I first start saying there's something really specially happening here. Um the three episodes that I picked here, I sort of regard them as dessert in the seasons that they're filming in that um, they've had to do a lot of monster of the week. They've done a lot of plot building. And I sort of view the episodes like this almost as rewards that the showrunners are giving them themselves. It's like, OK, we've been doing the, this for years. We want to do something exceptional and experimental. And this is what they came up with. That being said, the individual boilerplate shows like the Monster of the Weeks I've been talking about or the ones that build plot, they are um, they are good television. I mean, I would certainly uh, I, I, I mean, Twitter will drag me and I'll live with it. Uh, I would say that that uh, medium to good Buffy can stand against, say, medium to good The Wire. I mean the the writing quality is similar the 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 texture the, the everything it's it just it's it's really really well done and because it's old and because a lot of us hate Joss we we lose sight of that yeah i think that if this had been shot using the conventions of prestige tv which started to take shape as the show is running because this show does overlap with the sopranos right the first yeah. prestige tv show um you know, like if it had been shot as if it were prestige TV, if Buffy were an HBO show, I mean, it would have been wildly different. You would have had eight episode seasons instead of 24 episode seasons or whatever. I mean, that's one of the staggering things. Right. But um, it yeah, it would have looked different. The acting would probably have been of a higher level. And yet the, the I think the basic bones of what it is and, and the writing in a lot of cases is. Yeah, I agree. The, the gulf in the writing is not that profound. And part of it is that I would argue that. As much as I love The Wire, it's less like untouchably profound than has been argued at various points, especially in the in the recent past. Uh, but oh that's, yeah, that's neither here nor there. Like it, the point is like I I think Buffy, Buffy at its best deserves to stand among the best TV shows ever. I think that's that's and and that is both a result of its cultural significance and it's also a fact a result of the fact that at its best it was as interesting as just about anything else. Um, you know, and I think I, I feel comfortable saying that now. I, I feel comfortable saying that partly because I don't we know that I don't care about TV that much. So I'm not going to like it doesn't it doesn't shatter my world to say that. But <laughs> sure. I'm taking a stand here. Um, and I honestly want to watch more Buffy. And I'm wondering if like 
maybe we might have to talk about Buffy at some other point on the show because I might I might end up watching more. We'll see. But um, yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you, uh, this is an offer that you don't have to take me up on. But if you if you're looking for something specific, I'll be happy to curate it. Like if you want an interesting plot line or if you want to see some monsters of the week, I have great recommendations. Awesome. Cool. Um, yeah, man, I I think we'll we'll have to get together on that. Um, uh, are you ready for a softball? Yeah, please. Okay, let's give you a softball. So the, a lot of things in the show that at the time were revolutionary are now bland. Like uh, the relationship between Tara and Willow, the two two uh, uh, female witches, uh, was at the time like you could feel the earth shake. And now it's just something you'll see on television. Uh, what did anything feel subversive or challenging to you on that level? Like, did the, the did you recognize it as something that was sort of outside the norms of TV for the time? Or was it just sort of like, OK, this is a this is a constructed show and that's OK. I mean, I, I found myself asking a sort of meta version of that question because I was I was trying to rack my brain. I, I don't. I, again, wasn't watching adult TV very much in 1997. I guess I'd started by the time the show was done running in the early 2000s. But I I was wondering, I was like, I wonder how revolutionary um, the Willow, is it Tara? Is that her name? Yeah, Tara. Willow and, Ta- Willow and Tara thing yeah. was. Because, um, like, I know that, like, you know, homosexuality had been uh, – had been confronted, frankly, on like Seinfeld on, you know, in The Simpsons kind of as like a punchline, but as sort of like becoming a benevolent punchline rather than like a fearful taboo, in, you know, in in the years before Buffy premiered. Yeah, um, like the gay downstairs neighbor in Melrose Place who said hi once and then left like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, you know, I think in the 90s you saw a shift towards like you could you could have gay characters in pop culture that were you know that were sort of benevolent and and obviously often heavily stereotyped and all these things and I'm sure that there has been reams and reams of writing about this so I'm not going to wait into it but it's just point being what I found myself doing was asking those questions and saying what what was this like when it was first being put on the air and like you know you you folded into that question like does it feel dated or does it feel subversive I mean none of this show feels subversive in those ways like the ways that it that it talks that it approaches values out here in the real world i don't think is necessarily interesting anymore and in fact if we wanted to be hard on buffy we could probably say like this is you know we could say this is end of history suburbia like this is there's no real politics in this show which is you know kind of true from what i've seen like i don't think it's 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 uh in many ways an aggressively apolitical show which makes it fit into its time period right i mean yeah. for my one of my classes here we just watched eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and i was texting pete saying that's a movie from 2004 the height of the iraq war and i was like that is this is one of the most aggressively apolitical movies at least among critically acclaimed movies that i've ever seen yeah. uh and that came out you know the year after buffy ended um buffy ended in 2003 i believe so like if we wanted to be hard on Buffy, we'd say it was apolitical in a way that conformed to the worst, you know, uh, habits of its moment in, in time, culturally. Uh, I don't particularly, I'm not particularly interested in that critique because it's, it's always easy to do that. But like, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing feels subversive from what I've seen. Um, does it feel like dated or hacky? I mean, you know, I, I thought like for my money, um, the Willow Tara relationship from what I saw little I've seen of it, to be clear, I, you know, there's so much out there that I haven't seen, but like, it doesn't feel, I wasn't watching it and like grimacing at like, ah, this is how they depicted lesbians in the year 2000. Like it wasn't, I wasn't having those feelings, but perhaps someone is, and someone that is more, more concerned and invested in those depictions that I am might have different, different approach. So like I, you know, far be it for me to evaluate it, but it just, um, None of that registered with me, I guess I'm saying like like those those political things that in the episodes, in the, in the specific episodes we watched, the kind of political uh, sort of markers that we always find ourselves assessing on this show really did not make much of an impact on me. I found myself much more interested, um, much more sort of completely absorbed in what I what I could perceive the storytellers working to do within the strictures of network TV within the strictures of uh, pulpy genre storytelling. Um, 
So I, I, I looked at it through that, that lens and the politics just sort of sort of settled for me into like, yeah, this is kind of where things were in, you know, 2001, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, what's funny about this to me is like I didn't do this intentionally, but Hush is where where Willow and Tara first like hold hands. Like it's the very beginning of it all. And once more with feeling is when Tara figures out that Willow has been selectively editing her memory so that she won't break up with her. Yeah, I did and, pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I just like I. I you you would have pointed and laughed at the 90s Pete watching this for the first time so hard because like I was like, oh, my God, they're gay. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that you feel comfortable confessing to that. And I think I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of people watching this in that time period felt the same way. Like, I'm guessing the average Buffy viewer was probably on the more progressive end of things. But again, that's the point is like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was an ambient sense that unless you were a religious nut job or unless you were just a mean uh, spirited person that you were supposed to start embracing, um, you know, homeless. You were supposed to be become tolerant towards homosexuality. Yeah. The cultural consensus was generally and um, anybody who wants to like write in saying that they were not like this is welcome to. That's fine. But sort of the understanding was it was perfectly okay to be gay. Just, you know, shut up. Right. I think that's the the key thing, right? That it was like we accept this and we're not going to actively like I'm a good person, so I won't actively persecute you. But it's still okay for me to, like, be weirded out by it, right? It's still okay for me right. to, to single it out as not being in the norm. It's still okay for me to make jokes that I would ne- that we would now recognize as homophobic. I think the cultural tenor was kind of there, right? Uh, and, you know, again, if you were not like that back then, I, I say, in all sincerity, congrats to you for being a great person. I think the vast majority of sort of progressively minded people that I knew in that time period of different ages, like— yeah, I mean, it was much more acceptable to make homophobic jokes, um, jokes that we didn't oh, yeah. we didn't think were homophobic. We were just like basically like because being gay is funny, right? Like that was that was where we were. That's where we were, even though we were like, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to outlaw it. But like it's yeah. you look back on it and that that does make me cringe. I mean, again, I was super young in that time period, but like it was. Yeah. It, now that we're digging down deep into it, uh, I, I'm sure that made a, a strong impact on a lot of people, hopefully for the better, the way that it was depicted on the show. Again, this is something I'd have to ask somebody about. I'd love to ask somebody who's much more invested in in, in Buffy and these particular aspects of it, because I'm sure there are really detailed opinions out there about all of this. But oh, I think that's absolutely for true. my and- money. It definitely at the very least, it sort of brought me back to like that moment and made me sort of recontact how people were talking about those things then. And that was interesting. It made me, I mean, it made me uncomfortable only in the sense that like when you, it's, it's, uh, let's put it this way. It's always easy to view the past through a sepia lens and to say, yeah, of course things were better in, you know, 1998 because the, uh, the famous uh, trend lines of, you know, stagnant wages and rising cost of living hadn't diverged quite as much as they have now uh, or whatever, whatever your claim about those years is. Right. But the, when you dig down granular, granularly and think about certain certain things that we have broadly made progress on, that's when you're like, ah, yes, uh, it was. You know, we have we have to we have to pause here and say like, yeah. <laughs> so um, right. that that brought out some of those feelings in me, and that that you know, again, I think it's interesting that normally I come on this show and I have a bunch of political things I want to say. I didn't lead with that because I was so interested in Buddy. Uh, buddy Buffy at a pure purely aesthetic level uh it sort of lulled me into being interested in it in in those ways and that might partly be the Whedon thing where I'm like all right if this is the source code for so much that's happened since uh what what how did that emerge and I think like a big answer to that question is it simply it was fresher it was uh, it was obviously fresher and more interesting when it first emerged the Whedon the Whedon aesthetic Mm -hmm. I mean but also like the level of effort that Whedon and everybody else was putting into this show, like that is so far beyond when we track the Whedon approach to like his work on Marvel movies. You're just like, that is so like the laziness and cynical of his uh, cynicism of his Marvel work compared to like 
the exuberance and joy and artistic sincerity of Buffy, it, there's just no comparison. Is that a fair statement, Pete? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I, um, I, on some level, while I know that Joss Whedon loves the Marvel extended universe and the comics and all of that, um, I, I really view all of that stuff on some level as a payday and good for him. I mean, it was never going to be anything but a payday for somebody. So it might as well be him. But it, it does not like this work. It feels like something a little closer to a person's heart. Like it's it's less transactional. I, it I I'm does. not saying it right. It absolutely yeah. does. And what I find interesting about it is that it's working within network TV within these like, you know, two dozen episode seasons um, within all the tremendous work that goes into producing a show that is considered palatable for a wide network, probably weeknight audience. Um, and and yet, nevertheless, uh, it's the breaking free. It's the transcending all of that moments that are so fascinating. Um, and yeah, I mean, if nothing else, like Buffy is one of the great sort of examples of the way that these restrictions, which are imposed in great in great deal by capitalism, by commerce, um, and also genre itself. We've talked about in the show how genre creates strictures that, in a paradoxical way, allow for freedom. Because if you can, if you can satisfy the requirements of genre, then that opens up space for you to do interesting things. And I think Body is one of the greatest examples of that I, I can remember across media, precisely because the show, the episode has to achieve at least Monster of the Week. There has to be a Slayer moment. And again, the way they use that Slayer moment is to create a kind of tension that you're not, you would not expect. A kind of tension that I don't remember seeing done. I don't remember that that specific problem being posed in a scene before of like, we're fighting, but the thing we're really worried about is that the younger sister will see the, the corpse of her mom. That like really struck me. because it's, it's such an incredibly innovative use of something that is imposed by the genre. We have to fight a vampire in this episode. We can't just do this lingering grief thing. So how do we use the vampire to, to help with the grief? And they just nailed it. And it's like, that is so many of the things that this show idealizes that I try to think about in my own work. Um, Buffy at its best is a really interesting roadmap uh, to how those things can be achieved. Well, it's uh, um, anybody who played make-believe as a child like understands the risk of having a too powerful hero. Like if you're, if your hero is too powerful, your villains have to be progressively more powerful or it's boring is sort of the general path to take. So it's one of the things you can look and see with Buffy is like at the beginning, she's just fighting mid-level vampires. By the time she gets to like uh, level seven, she's literally fighting the concept of evil itself taken form. You know what I mean? Because they have to keep raising those stakes. And episode after episode, you can't do that with the audience without the audience getting bored. And what Whedon and his showrunners did, which was so wonderful, was look for other good ways to raise the stakes. Like what is what is important to Buffy? It's not just about whether she can beat up whatever she's facing. It's like, what are the actual costs? And I think that's one of the things that makes the show exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it that it so nails the sort of teen or young adults uh, personal uh, personal stories in, in a way that I'm sure can be could be soapy or profoundly cheesy at times. But uh, that's the show what the show is really about. Right. Uh, is right. Yeah. Because, again, like the, the show presents the ridiculousness of its premise so exuberantly. And, and, you know, there, there's there's a sense in which, like, you know, I think we know looking back, like, that such a big hallmark of Whedonism, as we call it, is that reflexivity, is that that meta gesture. There's no way that, like, when this, these episodes are being written, they weren't thinking, like, it is itself a joke that Buffy Summers, in the midst of all these things that are going on, is just walking around this cul-de-sac with a crossbow. Like, that, <laughs> that sort of basic premise of the show that recurs over and over again, the thing that grounds it to its initial... Yeah, to its premise, to its initial conceit, uh, is itself like over time becomes more and more of a joke, right? Like it's more and more about how hilarious that is. And the drama does not come from that that thing, which is the joke, which is the absurd aesthetic surface of Buffy. The drama comes from, uh, you know, much more traditional uh, 
and I, I think intensive over the course of several seasons character development. Um, and I, I just love that juxtaposition. And that's a juxtaposition that, that people are always like, people are always trying to pull that exact thing off where it's like the movie is basically the hook of my story is like, take, take me for example, the hook is there's a vampire. Vampires are cool. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, we're going to go deeper thematically. Great. But like, that's the hook, and I want you to enjoy the vampire thing, but we're also going to explore, like, how this is really about this very complex love story. Um, you know, we had Connor Goldsmith on savaging my my pitch, as he should have done, and it was great. Uh, you know, it was, it was so much about, like, his point was, don't give me the—he didn't say this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase and say, like, don't give me the bullshit, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer hook. Don't give me— the sort of glitzy world building or the your sort of fun conceit that you're doing for yourself. Give me the characters. And, you know, I mean, every stories are ultimately about character in general. It's not a profound statement, but like the way that Buffy was able to transform its initial conceit into this kind of meta joke that it used to move you energetically through the lives of these characters. And again, I'm piecing this together because I haven't seen the whole show. That's the sense that I get at least. So you can tell me if you think I'm right or not, but like that is really, really interesting to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, I think you're on it. I want to get you to say something mean about the show. So let's talk about the vampire aesthetic within the show itself. You, you didn't like the choices made there. You, 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 you thought it was trying to take the best of both worlds. Is that right? So I've said this show before. I think that the key choice one, well, yeah, no, actually, I will say this. The, the key choice one makes with vampires is actually aesthetic um, in the most traditional sense, which is that you have to choose whether your vampires are sexy vampires or gross vampires. Um, and Buffy really wants to have it both ways. It's not the only show. It's not the only story that's ever had like vampires that are suave and sexy and then transform into ugly monsters when they want to feed. That is a common enough move. I don't like that move. Because you're either having the, the vampires embody all of the sort of Baroque, gothic sexiness of the undead, haunted, uh, beyond time being that vampires can be, or you're having vampires be another gross creature of the night, like a werewolf or a ghoul or whatever, right? I, I think that that choice is really, really deeply important to how you frame vampires, and I think it's a little bit cheap of Buffy to have, like, Oh, here's Spike. You know, he's being Spike. He's sexy. He's wry. And then when he's really being a vampire, he gets really ugly. And it's like, what? You know, why? Like, what? What is that really adding? I guess it. I guess it means that when he's getting his face beaten in, it's not Spike's pretty face that's getting beaten in. Like that. That might be the the real um, the reasoning behind that for Buffy. But like, I just you know, insofar as this is a show about vampires, which it really isn't, but there are a lot of vampires in it. Um, you know, as, as a vampire, uh, someone who's interested in vampires and in the, for the purposes of Vampire Month, I'm going to give that a thumbs down as a choice. I think Buffy should just run with the sexy vampires. <laughs> I My theory here, and I'm just shooting from the hip, uh, is that since this is targeted at teenagers and young adults, making... Uh, when you're talking about vampires in the show, on some level you're talking about sexuality because, like... You know, she's fucking him, right? And yes. <laughs> it's it's the it's the combination of them being attractive and them being horrible, which makes that choice so interesting because like that was my experience of sex in high school. I was drawn to it and man, it was a it was a minefield. Like the things that happened to people I knew related to sex that were horrible were were varied. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that making it about the the horrors and perils of adolescent sexuality is an interesting point for sure. Um, I, you know what I'm really saying here, and this will come out as we do Vampire Month. What I'm really saying is I like sexy vampires and I think vampires should be sexy vampires because there are other monsters that are gross. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 actually, I that is a great response because in things like this, you kind of do have to commit to the direction you want to go and push it. So, like, if you were just a random person I was talking to, I'd be like, that's really weird. But as somebody who wants to write about them, thank you. Yeah, and I make no apologies. My vampires are very sexy, damn it. <laughs> uh, and honestly, in that in that way, I do owe, for all the criticism I just level, I owe a debt of gratitude to Buffy for helping cement uh the appeal of vampires and also for putting vampires 
I mean, I, I don't know what role. I'm sure that vampires were in stories that could be called urban fantasy or suburban fantasy, as, as the case may be with Buffy. But like, you know, I mean, this was not the first case, I'm sure, of vampires and vampire hunters wearing like leather trench coats and doing like uh, a cool kid spoof of 90s goth aesthetics. But I'm sure I have no doubt that it was an important influence on framing the contemporary vampires that we have now. So, you know, once again, shout out to Buffy for that. Well, I we have a lot more questions. In fact, we we barely covered any of them. But I also think we're probably at a good point, Connor. Are there things you really want to talk about here? No, I mean, I think that we can revisit Buffy and maybe we, we should revisit Buffy at some point. We may even do it this month. I don't want to make any promises to our audience, but... I I will end by saying I I expected to have fun watching these last night and I had a lot more fun than I even hoped. Um and you know I think I think there's a lot more here to unearth with Buffy. There's there's a sort of richness and a cultural like this is a cultural vein that has been mined before obviously, but I think that like reexamining Buffy now um 20 years or so later is it, it turns out to be a much richer endeavor than I suspected. Um, and that, of course, that deeply intrigues me. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed Buffy. If you haven't seen Buffy, go watch it. <laughs> yeah, it, it would, this would be too much. So I don't think we should actually do this. But one of the things that has occurred to me is that it would be possible to make a full Whedon month and there would be a lot of interesting episodes. I think by the end we would be in, it would be like we've been in prison the whole month. <laughs> <laughs> so what Pete just did there is he said, I think we should do Whedon Month. And then he paused and said, did I just say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like uh, the review of Dollhouse would just be 45 minutes of me screaming uninterrupted. Well, <clears throat> I just want to say, folks, uh, as we as we sign off here on Joss Whedon's cultural influence, it's a thing. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Every single night, the same arrangement. I go out and fight the fight. Still, I always feel the strangest estrangement. Nothing here is real. Nothing here is right. I've been making shows of trading blows, just hoping no one knows. But I've been going through the motions, walking through the part. Nothing seems to penetrate my heart. I was always brave and kind of righteous, now I find I'm wavering.